Hey, Sound Opinions listeners, if you support us on Patreon, you get to listen to our podcast ad-free on Patreon. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and this week, we'll do a classic album dissection of the 1982 X album, Under the Big Black Sun. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. But first, X vocalist, bassist, solo artist, and actor, John Doe. We want to welcome John Doe to the show Great new uh, solo album out, 40-plus years of history. <laughs> I, it's like almost daunting, John, to chat with you because we don't even know where to start. But uh, welcome to Sound Opinions. Well, you, uh, thank you. And and you may start wherever you choose. You've already started at the, at the most important place. Yeah. Why don't we chat about that? And then on Sound Opinions, we do these classic album dissections when there's an album that changed uh, Greg's life, my life, and there's a significant date. But I want to talk about the newest stuff first. That's a great idea. I can roll this into where I am and what inspired this record. Yeah, you're in Chicago, right? No, I am in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Oh, okay. I heard you were spending some time here. No, I'm in Tulsa, and uh, it's because they're opening the Bob Dylan Center. I got invited here because I, you know, I wrote a thousand words or so on uh, a record, which also inspired or was part of the inspiration for this new record, uh, a Bob Dylan record. Which one? John Wesley Harding. Ah, okay. The new solo album is Fables in a Foreign Land. It's raw. It's uh, rootsy. It is It is just a great record, John. Congratulations. Is it a raw, rootsy record? Yes! It is. It, is. it sounds like a Fat Possum record, you know? They did the last X record, and you're putting this solo album out with them. Some impressive guests, uh, Louis Perez from Los Lobos. So, so what's the Dylan connection? I don't know exactly how. Probably because... You know, I got to be part of the Music Cares show that um, Bob picked all the people that were going to be singing and participating in that, and I was lucky enough to, to get chosen. And we've met each other over the years a, a couple times, and, and it's always been pretty positive. I got to open for him at the Hollywood Palladium once, and, and so there's a history. And, and I, of course, like a lot of songwriters, I was totally influenced by Bob Dylan. I mean... He's one of those guys, right? So they called me, I think it was four years ago, to come up here and look at some of the archive before they had solidified how and what the Dylan Center was going to be. And uh, they were asking journalists and some musicians to come up and pick a record of Bob's that was uh, influential. John Wesley Harding was the one that I felt like was mine. And so I, I looked at a bunch of notebooks that, that Bob Dylan, you know, wrote while that record was being made. I uh, listened to all these different takes they, they have available of that session. Oh, wow. And some of them are basically the same. And then you hear the one that was on the record and you go, oh, yeah, there's, there's the one. But there's not much changes. But the song that inspired me most was uh, As I Went Out One Morning, which started as a very slow 3-4 version. They do two takes of the slow 3-4 time, and then the third take is completely different. It was a great choice. <laughs> it, was, it was obvious, huh? As I went out one morning To breathe the air around Tom Payne 
Good choice, because the other one was kind of um, lugubrious. Yeah, it didn't really have the pep. And there were only four takes. I always loved the simplicity of that record, and I've kind of grown tired of overdubs, and I've begun to appreciate space a lot more than filler or licks. Well, when you talk about that record, that Dylan record being an influence, you know, you look at even the cover image, that sort of sepia-toned photo on the cover and the, and the way the, the music is, it was just coming off his electric period, you know, and now he'd made this kind of more insular kind of uh, acoustic-based record, it seemed like. You talk about your new record being set in the end of the 1890s. It almost seems like the idea of an 1890s setting would fit John Wesley Harding, too, in some ways. That's true. It was a challenge for me. I mean, a, a couple of songs came along of, of this new record, and then I thought, oh, well, this, this is similar to you know, a couple of other songs I'd written earlier, and do I really want to have any modern references? Maybe no. And maybe I can stay disciplined and, and keep it on track to tell a story. There's a beginning and an end. There's, the middle is like open to interpretation. It's more like uh, what this narrator either experienced or stories that he or she was told. I think my desire is similar to maybe what any songwriter or certainly Bob's was on John Wesley Harding is to allow the listener to step into a world that you create, walk around, see what it's like, attach yourself to some of the experiences or experience those things secondhand and just have that feeling of, of, of what it's like. And so that, that's why there's a lot of stories, a lot of heavy imagery and sort of cinematic stuff, because that, that always appeals to me. I noticed that you worked with Terry Allen on this record. Underappreciated, I think, uh, singer-songwriter from, from Texas. Lubbock guy, I think, uh, was the origin. He wrote a great song about Lubbock back in the day. Yes. Terry's a character. How did you meet him? How did you work together on this record? He was on one of those train trips that Dave Alvin used to host. Get on in Los Angeles and get off wherever you felt like it. And so Terry and I just hit it off. And he invited me to, to do this songwriter conference that he does in Marfa around July. And it's, that's his and Joe Harvey's uh, anniversary. And uh, we wrote a few songs with, with several other people, with Bucca his, um, and Bale, his sons, and Joe Harvey's sons, and Charlie Sexton. We wrote a couple of really good songs. So I, I thought maybe he's got some other lyrics or some chords that he hasn't finished or, you know, because Terry's a great songwriter, storyteller as well. I sent him that song Never Coming Back, just as a idea of here's where this record is going. Never coming back You killed my mind Burn down their side I'm going far away Thinking that he would listen to that as inspiration, but he ended up sending me a bunch of additional lyrics and like, here's a bridge and here's a, you know, and <laughs> I'm thinking like, well, actually, that song is done, but maybe it's not. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, yeah, I added some, some of his words in the chorus, that never coming back. That and, you know, just sort of opening up with uh, Louis Perez uh, and on that song, El Romanzo, and also uh, Shirley Manson and Exene on uh, Destroying Angels. So, good process. 
Never Coming Back is a killer opening track and leads us on this journey. There's an intimacy on this record. And and I was wondering, I mean, it had to be uh, recorded during lockdown, right, John? I mean, because it sounds yeah. like, you know, a back porch hoot nanny you know, around the campfire. You know, Shirley Manson and, and Louie coming in and Exene. It, how did you manage to pull that off when we were all stuck in our holes for two years <laughs> well uh you know uh, unfortunately uh shirley and exine and and louis didn't sing or play on the record because i would have loved to have them but we couldn't but they're contributing to the songwriting and we pulled it off by me calling up kevin smith who normally tours with willie nelson saying let's just can we get together on your patio and he said yes please then called conrad chacroon who had been touring with Patty Griffin, and uh, we had played a couple of gigs together, the three of us, and, and it just seemed like it was going to serve these songs and wrote songs from, say, April 2020 into when we recorded, which was, uh, oh, I don't know, the, like the middle of 2021. So there really was a patio involved. I nailed that. <laughs> yes. Oh, absolutely. It's a back, it back porch, patio, whatever you want to call it. And because I just wanted to serve the songs... We didn't have to have amplifiers and we didn't have to have a PA system. And in the recording studio, we didn't use headphones. We didn't have, we just sang out, sang and played into the air because Kevin's playing upright. Conrad can muffle his drums enough to, you know, hear the vocals over top. And we just had to listen to each other. You've been uh, pretty busy. I mean, you just did an X record, first one in a long time, and then right away you come up with this pretty thought-out concept record. Was this something that was percolating for a long time or, or how did you get to the point where you could put out such a thought-through solo record on top of a record with your old band? Not really all that thought out. It does have a beginning and it does have an end, but like I said, the middle is a little bit up to interpretation. I had been thinking about doing John Doe Folk Trio. I did that maybe seven or eight years ago when we still lived in California. And it was with some friends that I had made other records with, and it always turned into more of a folk rock trio and actually leaning more heavily on the rock. So I didn't get that shuffly thing that could be played in the back of a bar or around a campfire or something like that. And I give Kevin and Conrad all the credit in the world for coming up with that sound. I mean, yeah, I had these songs. I just kept shifting them so that they didn't have modern references. You know, there's a... There's a story arc maybe to each song, but not a story arc to the whole record. It, it is a concept record without pretension. It just is set in a certain time. Uh, and, I, and I pulled, you know, I pulled a, a number of um, pieces of writing that I had done over the years, touring in vans and, and seeing the countryside and, and feeling isolated and feeling alone and lonely. And, and um, you know, that luckily related to what we had all just gone through. So I'm hoping that, you know, people can... Listen to this and think about 2021, that sort of thing. I kept flashing Greg, and, and Greg and I are huge fans, were huge fans of Deadwood. There had been a house band in Al Swearingen's bar. I think you're, you're short-selling the middle of the record, because that kind of storytelling, something like the cowboy in the hot air balloon. I mean, I can just picture, you know, some character fronting this trio, you know, while Al is doing his dirty deeds in the bar, telling us this story. Oh, stop. You're making me blush. Uh, you're talking my language. What can I say? In my dreams, right. my friend, in my dreams. You know, or maybe some Sam Peckinpah uh, movie. Oh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, with, with a surplus of blood capsules. Every In your 40 or 50-odd movie roles, have you, ever, have you ever had to, like, get shot? Oh, yes. 
Yes, I have. I was racking my brain trying to remember. Well, there was one at the very beginning, which T-Bone Burnett and um, this guy Hudson Marquez, who's an artist, sort of directed and produced. It was a short movie called The Spanish Kitchen. It's a legend in L.A., uh, this kitchen on Beverly, which was right next to where the original Slash Records uh, headquarters was. And it closed mysteriously. And you could look through the Venetian blinds in the front window and because they had sort of fallen apart because it closed sometime in the 50s, I think, or maybe 60s. The Venetian blinds had started to fall apart and they, and you could see all the silverware still on the table and the napkins. And it was just like, we're done. And then they didn't even clear it out. They didn't prepare me and they shot it off. And, and I think I said, I said, oh, I'm shot. <laughs> Which you're not supposed to do, but uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, no. The, the, I guess the best uh, stunt I had was in Roadhouse. I, I got hit with a knife, a big Bowie knife, that came into my chest, and they they did. They put a big plastic plate and then a piece of wood under my shirt, and then ran a thread through the shirt, like out thirty feet away, and then they had a steel barrel on the top of this knife and they just zinged it along the the <laughs> this wire <laughs> and it went like bam into my chest it's like <laughs> yeah. that that was like it was like someone punching you in the chest it was no fun man that's, suffering for the art terrifying. i know suffering roadhouse now there was a movie <laughs> <laughs> that was that was so much fun doing roadhouse it was totally seeing the elephant it was like a Joel Silver production with Ben Gazzara and, you know, Patrick Chewing Swayze. The scenery, Ben Gazzara. Oh, yeah. my God. Oh, my God. And But having the best time. Having the best yeah. time being a, the, a great villain and uh, just so much money. So much money. Oh, my God. When they ran over those cars and just drove through the car showroom, they had built that whole thing. Just to destroy it. Yeah. Did your experiences with Hollywood, John, ever make you wonder, am I in the wrong business? <laughs> not not film, but this punk rock thing, I'm holding my own amplifier oh, for totally. 40 years. Are you kidding? When we return, we dive into the X album Under the Big Black Sun with John Doe for its 40th anniversary. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. This week, we're talking all things X, the L.A. punk band that melded together different musical styles and went on to influence many other bands. Before we jump into our classic album dissection of Under the Big Black Sun with vocalist bassist John Doe, we want to give a little context. Um, you know, Greg, it always struck me that Los Angeles was a little bit late to the party. If we look at 76, 77 as the high water mark of the New York and London punk scenes, uh, L.A. heats up a little later, right? Well, you know, I, everybody, when the Ramones album hit in 76, that was a big moment for a lot of bands. I mean, we can do this. Listen to what these guys are doing. Maybe we can do something like this as well. I think these bands were already kind of in the air mm. a little bit, but the idea that you could actually get up on a stage and get a gig at a club, uh, heavily motivated by by that Ramones debut album, uh, not only did it influence the, the English punk scene, but the L.A. punk scene similarly. 
you're right. You know, 1976 uh, was kind of the formative moment. 77, 78, we started to see records from bands like The Germs. Mm. Uh, you know, you can't have a better punk rock name than Darby Crash. You had the Screamers, who, to my mind, you know, one of the first punk bands, and, you know, already uh, kind of out of the mode of, like, it's got to be guitar, bass, and drums. I mean, they were doing these electronic elements in their yeah. music, you know? You had the Weirdos, you know, they had the cropped hair, the tongue-in-cheek attitude, you know the 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 idea that there there was an element of 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 well well there is weirdness we were the weird kids in school now we're the weird kids on stage mm. uh, inspiring other weird kids to do the same thing that we're doing the dills you know the precursors to rank and file they had yeah. songs like class war and i hate the rich you know <laughs> anthems <laughs> The Dickies kind of doing that pop punk thing. It was almost a comedy element to it. And then you had the the, the Go-Go's. The precursor for the Go-Go's and X uh, was a band called The Eyes, which had you know DJ Bonebreak, the future yeah. drummer of X, and Charlotte Caffey, the, the, the guitar player in, in the Go-Go's. So you, you started to see these bands intermingling around that time. In 78, uh, a harder edge scene starts to emerge from the L.A. suburbs. This is kind of, you know, punk is more of a Hollywood thing. Mm-hmm. And now you're seeing these Orange County, L.A. suburban bands coming up, you know, starting to play this hardcore music, which is, this is much more male-driven, much more testosterone-driven, harder-edged in some ways, less diverse. Violent. You know, more violent. violent. There was a lot of violence in those shows. Black Flag, Fear, The Circle Jerks. Uh, political to an extent. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in the, in the case of The Circle Jerks, very political. What they did, got the present, got us in this uh, very confrontational and a very different sound. But you had these two scenes side by side sort of developing, the Hollywood scene versus the hardcore suburban scene. So by the time X is in full fury with their debut album coming out in mm-hmm. uh, 1980, uh, the scene was very vibrant. There was a, a very active la punk scene so how does how does x get started in them how do they how do they create their distinctiveness in the midst of all these great bands well i think from the beginning x stood out uh although on los angeles in 1980 and wild gift 1981 you don't hear uh the the vibrant mix of influences as much as you do uh on the album that we're gonna uh, dissect under the big black sun. Uh, but, you know, 1980s debut, Los Angeles, is a statement. You know, this is us. Right. This is West Coast. This is punk. She had to leave. Los Angeles. She's hard 
John Doe uh, had met Billy Zoom. The band comes together in 77 with those two. John brings his uh, then-girlfriend, uh, L.A. underground slam poet, wasn't called that then, uh, Exine Cervenka, to the rehearsals. She winds up in the band. DJ Bonebreak's the last one to join. Uh, as you said, he'd been in this band The Eyes. He occasionally filled in for the germs on drums. Uh, really under rated as as a key uh, uh, thing that solidified that band. Mm-hmm. I mean, his approach to punk drumming was incredibly subtle and very different than one, two, three, four, right? Right. Uh, but from the beginning, you know, especially with Billy Zoom on guitar, the range of influences, uh, Bo Diddley, Eddie Cochran, Johnny Cash, uh, a lot of American country, mm-hmm. but hyped up to this punk Fury. Um, we can hear bits and pieces of that in Los Angeles, Wild Gift, uh, the first two albums. But I really think Under the Big Black Sun is where they explode the boundaries, which are becoming increasingly narrow, as mm-hmm. you said, with those bands from just outside of L.A. and the hyperviolence and the hyperactive mm-hmm. tempos. You know, X slows down a little bit, <laughs> mm-hmm. doesn't lose the fury, but begins to amplify this great tradition of American music. And I think, you know, John was always the scholar. Mm. Billy Zoom knew which guitar licks to rip (laughs) off, and he was encyclopedic uh, with his love of rockabilly. But I think John Doe knew the traditions all the way back to to folk music. Well, I think the songwriting in particular, you know, Billy Zoom was a great artist in terms of the guitar. You mentioned, you know, the rockabilly, but there was also a lot of jazz influence in Billy Zoom's guitar playing. He was like almost a pre-rock and roll in in terms of the kinds of influences he was bringing. So Mm -hmm. that was distinctive, too. But you're right. John uh, had that... um, a perspective on on what you know again roots music in America um, country especially yeah uh, and and bringing that element into the sound and with Exene he had a perfect foil the counterpoint vocals uh, were truly distinctive the the that male female dialogue that they had on stage every night well and and what they represented as a loving couple mm-hmm. bohemian uh, both artists uh, following their path but doing it together yeah for sure. Now let's go back to our conversation with John Doe. We want to talk a little bit about Under the Big Black Sun too, John. 40th anniversary, I don't know if you were aware of that or keep track of such things, but us yes. rock critic geeks do. I still remember the day I bought it, all the X records. Jim and I are huge fans of the of the band, and those first, I'd say the first four albums are just masterpieces. It's hard to choose just one, but this happens to be the 40th anniversary of Under the Big Black Sun. From what I understand, I think I talked to you before about this, but you had said that basically the first two records were pretty much written, like you had recorded a lot of that material with Raymond Zarek and it was just a matter of like this is going on the Los Angeles album this is going to go on the next record Wild Gift and then Under the Big Black Sun was kind of like a reset what was your recollection of of, of the songwriting process for that record well we we didn't tour like people tour nowadays we didn't tour for eight months out of the year we would tour for maybe three you know we'd, we'd go out for a month and then come home and then figure out what other you know, area of the U.S., and maybe we did something in Europe for those first two records. I would say about half of Wild Gift was written as we were recording Los Angeles. I give Ray Manzarek all the credit for choosing the songs that went on to Los Angeles. We had songs like We're Desperate, Adult Books. There were several songs that wouldn't have fit on the sort of dark underbelly, whatever, you know, people said about it, that was on Los Angeles. So I give Ray all the credit for that. We're 
As, as we had gotten more and more popular and basically shamed some major record company, which turned out to be Elektra, into signing us, we realized we had to get to business. So, you know, for, for better or for worse, at the same time, Exine's sister had been killed in a car wreck. And, and that was something that, that was in 1980, right as Los Angeles was released. Exine and I had just gotten married before that, so there were a lot of unacknowledged, undealt with, trauma that, that we went through, and especially Exene. I mean, I, I was close with her sister, but I, she wasn't my sister. So riding with Mary and Come Back to Me and uh, Under the Big Black Sun, the song, they, they were all relevant. I, I guess we, you know, and plus we were feeling ourselves. We have we have this band that, that is a collection of four people that make something, you know, more than just one plus one is two. me at the time i loved wild gift in los angeles and then chris cow reviews under the big black sun in the in the village voice and you know is it, you know these uh los angeles bohemians you know have finally you know they're connecting <laughs> with roots and blah 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 and i'm like i don't know x was pretty great the first time i heard under the big black sun i was like wow you know daring to slow down <laughs> you know come back to me and beautiful cover of dancing with tears in my eyes but also just something like you know, The Hungry Wolf was such an opener. You know, I roam endlessly with my mate and say, like, okay, we all knew John and Exine got married and <laughs> wow, is it, what's that house like? You know what I mean? <laughs> They're both wolves. <laughs> Well, that's that makes me laugh because uh, our house was great. It was chaotic at times, you know, because it was at times it was a real party pit, you know. It wasn't as though we calculated that. It just was, and and we, I was so fulfilled in that I went to Los Angeles to find some sort of bohemian lifestyle, and damn if I didn't find it. And now we're signed to a major record company. You know, still there's all kinds of, you know, self-deprecating and, and feeling not worthy and, and imposter syndrome, which that wasn't even a thing then, but you, you still had it. But like I say, we, we were feeling ourselves. We felt like we were so outside of the mainstream that even if we did like Dancing with Tears in My Eyes or Come Back to Me, it was still punk rock because, you know, Blondie had opened that path. They would do things that were like surf rock. We can, we can play a song like Benny King, you know, we, we did uh, adult books, which was sort of similar. Nick Lowe had said, had said, okay, well, that's all right. You can do that and still be dissatisfied and, and saying, 
the man. What, where did Dancing with Tears in My Eyes come? Obviously, it's a very famous song, but not the first thing you would think of a punk band from Los Angeles doing during that era. What, uh, how did you hit upon that song and in that particular treatment of that song? Well, as a kid, I'm of a certain age where we were given folk music as, you know, our little 10-inch records, you know? I don't know if you recall it. You would probably recall those. I mean, first it was Burl Ives, and then there's Lead Belly, and then there's Woody Guthrie, and then there's Cisco Houston, and, and there's, you know... Uh, and all of it had these stories, you know, getting back to this fables in a foreign land. And Lead Belly is the version of Dancing with Tears in My Eyes that, that we took our version from, that, that I learned the chord, you know, figured out the chords from that. And it also strikes me as that Billy Zoom was always talked about as like this rockabilly guy. And then, you know, some of his guitar textures on this record, that song in particular, you know, you hear the sort of the jazzy, jazzy influence. And then he's, you know, he's playing saxophone on Come Back to Me, right? You go, man, this guy's even cooler than I thought. It was just kind of <laughs> like he's doing all this other non-punk rock stuff in the context of a so-called punk record, uh, yeah. which I thought was fascinating. And talk a little bit about Billy. I know he was hardcore about what you guys should sound like and what you should be. He wasn't like Johnny Ramone, who basically said, we're doing this and this way right. only for you know 25 straight records. It seemed like Zoom could right. sort of go outside I got to confess, I saw X for the first time with Under the Big Black Sun. It was either the Peppermint Lounge or the old Ritz in New York, and the crowd had pushed me right in front of Billy. <laughs> scared me, John. Oh, my God, those eyes that looked... 10,000 yards. But he always had that yes. big smile on his face. Yeah, yeah. I, but I was scared. I was <laughs> I, I was 16 or something, so. He's, he's the Chris Walken of uh, punk rock. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> very handsome, very blonde, but something very dark going on inside. Yeah. <laughs> well, Billy's father was a musician in the Midwest and was a jazzer. And they, you know, his mom and dad had like matching Indian motorcycles and you know they had paved the way for Billy to be a jazzer and for him, his first instrument was woodwinds so Billy is a musician from beginning to end and he can build his own amp so he's got this focus he's amazing he he consistently you know you'll expect him to do one thing and he'll do another and i'd say his influences were you know Merle Travis and Les Paul you know, so there, there's a lot of that in, in his background. But when he heard Eddie Cochran and when he heard Scotty Moore and people like that, it was like, oh, there's my there's my thing. You can hear the Scotty Moore, yeah. And I would give Billy credit for, for bringing rockabilly guitar playing into punk rock. The doo-wop playing that he did on Come Back to Me, in addition to saxophone, but how you know what he did on guitar there and the sort of, Les Paul, Scotty Moore stuff he does on Dancing with Tears in My Eyes. And I would even say that that's a, a tribute to Exene's sister, because you, you have to continue on in your world and you have to make the best of a horrible situation. I want to 
ask about the have-nots. It seems to me, in a lot of ways, that the album all builds to that track. And it mm. is this classic kind of, uh, you know, it's a cliche to even say it, but it's this Charles Bukowski guy at the end of the bar. But it seems so prescient. You know, living with this album again for the last week, because we're going to talk to you about its 40th anniversary, this is the game that moves as you play. <laughs> and it just seems like those people, those working class stiffs at the shot in the beer joint, it, it kind of went south in a lot of ways. I mean, they have so much anger. Uh, rightly so, right? This is the move, the game that moves as you play, right? You can never get ahead. It's rigged. The system's rigged. But talking about this in 82 and it seems like it is shaping everything that's happening in 2022 I was, I was particularly curious about that song coming together i don't think at that point there was that sort of anger i think it was i think it was more resigned and it's like okay you know this is this is where i am i get up and go to work it may not be fulfilling but i got my you know guys at the bar and and that'll that'll do if you worked it out right then you could still have a loving relationship at home. It didn't mean that it was all horrible. It, it was just a working class life. Exine wrote pretty much all the words to that. And it was an ode to her dad, who was a carpenter and in Chicago. That's funny, that line, this is the game that moves as you play. Exine stole that from uh, a board game. <laughs> I, I, I believe, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was called Astron. And there was a board but there was a plastic sheet over the board and there were knobs that you turned. So it was kind of like an, an etch-a-sketch where the, you didn't move your piece around the board. The board moved and your piece stayed in the same place, but the board moved. The byline said, Astron, this is the game that moves as you play. Moves as you play. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, yeah. whoa. And only a few years later, who's could do would take another popular kids <laughs> game and, and uh, punk rock. You see something good, steal it. You put your own stamp on it. But I, I think, you know, it was also at that point, there were a lot of, you know, what we used to call old man bars. And that's inviting in, in a weird way, because you can just sort of check out for a certain period of time. And, and, and we were sort of fascinated with that, you know, being young, but seeing how hard, hard work was part of our ethos. Well, that, that shout out to the list of, you know, the Heidi Ho and the Get Down Lounge. And, you know, and then later you guys would do that with some of the other bands that you considered fellow travelers. There was always this kind of magnanimity to X, you know, good luck to all bands, right? You know, well, yeah, I think that was part of the, that's what happened at CBGB's. That's what happened yeah. in L.A. because you couldn't do it yourself. It just wasn't the support system. Everybody had to kind of work together. You know, it was a little bit like, let's put on a show, kids. <laughs> <laughs> You'd mentioned that, uh, you know, you and Exine were a couple. You were married. And um, I think you finally got a chance to, to, to write about what it meant to be married on this record. It was more personal from that standpoint. There's several songs here that address the idea of a, an adult relationship, which is, what a revelation, you know? A lot of rock songs up at that point have been about teen romance. This was about two adults trying to make, make a life together. I always was struck by because I do. I'm the married kind, the kind that said I do, forever searching for someone new. And I'm going, wow, that's a hell of a line to be singing at each other. <laughs> you know, you see, I saw you guys perform that song on stage, and it's just like, wow. You know, you're kind of putting it out there, you know. They're married, 
they're singing about this, like, maybe this isn't exactly working out the way I figured it was going to. And, you know, you don't want to say it's autobiographical, but it could be. It sort of was, but at the same time, I didn't think, like, I'm in trouble. Just like, it was, it was art. Just forever searching for, for the next thing. And Exane is very talented in creating a character and it not just being her, not being autobiographical. Yeah, it may be rooted in something that she felt, but it's not rooted in who she truly is. Uh, White Girl was, was sort of a, a song about temptation. And yeah, I'm, I'm putting the same thing out there. And Exane's just singing along and it's like, mm-hmm. you guys are yeah. messed up. <laughs> <laughs> but we survived. And, and we survived even when we split up. And, and that's a beautiful thing. And, and I honor that relationship and know that uh, as long as we're both alive, we'll be, uh, we'll be together, at least in that way. Coming up, we'll finish our conversation with the great John Doe and discuss X's influence on music today. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. He's Jim DeRigatis. This week, we're talking with John Doe of X. Let's jump back into our chat. Well, you mentioned earlier, John, Billy uh, uh, sometimes being recalcitrant or putting his foot down. And he was the editor of the group. This yes. is good. That's not. And Exine uh, has had an evolution in her thinking. Four distinct individuals. <laughs> How do you navigate that? Because, you know, Greg's interviewed you a number of times. I've seen interviews with you. Uh, I've read your writings. I mean, you seem to be the easygoing guy in X. I don't know about DJ. He's kind of quiet. right? But Jesus, that the drums on Hungry Wolf. How do you navigate that? Four distinct personalities coming back together again over those decades. Oh, you know, I'd come to say that it's like a family. You got to get together for Thanksgiving no matter what, right? You, you let that sink in and families are crazy complicated. And you realize, you know what? What's good outweighs what's bad. And living in Texas now, living in Austin, you see a Trump flag and you have to say, okay, I don't agree with that, but you're part of the world too. And I think that's important. I think living in, in, a, in a place that only has your point of view is, uh, is tough. It's dangerous. And we respect each other. That, that's how we navigate it. And we don't, we don't, we don't sweat the small stuff. And, and whatever has, uh, what's ever in the past is you try to downplay the bad and, and remember the good. And We're at such a viciously opposed time in American history. You know, as a beat reporter, I learned early on, sometimes the scariest, you know, the guys in the biker bar who you, you didn't know if you were going to make it out alive, you know, you got a flat tire, they'll come out and they'll like lift your car up physically and have to change the tire, right? <laughs> Those guys in the bars in the have-nots, yeah. you might not want to know what they really think about women or about race, but, you know, if a tornado's coming, are they going to help their neighbors rebuild if disaster comes, right? You know, can't we reconnect with that basic uh, we're all in this together feeling in America? Yes, I would hope so. And the the good people, you know, the Jimmy Stewart's of those uh, working class types will say, well, what the hell, you know? Uh, I was actually talking to Shirley Manson about this, and I don't mean to—I don't mean to name drop, but I'm giving her credit for it. That it's fear; it's fear of chaos, and and that's why people are so angry. I would think, after going through the last two years, that there'd be a lot more empathy. But people are afraid, and and I think those guys in the the difference between now and then, you know, 82 and 22, is the fear 
and you know the 24 news cycle and all this sort of stuff because those guys at the end of the bar they probably would drop the n-word but they probably worked with a lot of black folks on their assembly line and they were they were they were happy to to be to have them as their union brother you know kind of thing so you know and that brings us back to fables you know if you're talking about uh trying to stay alive in Deadwood. <laughs> you may not like the Native Americans, but when things get bad, everybody's in this together, right? You know, is it, taming the frontier required all hands on deck. It's not a simpler time, but it's more elemental. It, it is like you either get your food or you starve. You either fix your roof or you freeze. And, and that's part of what appealed to me. And you know, on, on the race subject, the guilty bystander was inspired by the murder of George Floyd. It was right around that same time. And I kept thinking like, well, what's a song that I could be singing when I was doing some virtual shows? And I thought about the, you know, there's a man going around taking names that Leadbelly did. And, you know, that's about slavery and stuff. And, and I thought, no, that's not. And then I, you know, happened upon this uh, idea of a guilty bystander. And it means nowadays you got to, you got to get in there. You got to, you got to say the right thing. You got to do the right thing, and and you can't be a bystander. You have to stand up. It, it's a it's a hard song to sing live because you're saying slaves and masters, and people are going like, "Oh God, that's that's prickly." Oh golly, <laughs> golly, John, <laughs> why do you want to bring up such <laughs> such difficult subjects? It's not like you weren't bringing up difficult subjects before. That, and that was true about Alphabet Land. People said, "Oh God, this is so." Uh, current and stuff. And it's like, we've been singing about this since the beginning, like the world's a mess. It's in my kiss. And it's just, you know, sometimes things catch up to you and, and things are, uh, and, and they're more prescient, as you said. We are privileged to talk about this record 40 years on because it's so rare to have a record somebody made 40 years ago and go, you know, this still sounds pretty good. This still sounds very Ahead contemporary. Of yeah. It has aged well, I should say. Uh, how do you feel about that record in particular? I think it's one of the best sounding records we did. And I give Ray Manzarek credit for that as well because all the Doors records sound like their version of a blues record. They didn't use tricks like Jimi Hendrix did. They didn't use tricks like, you know, some of the other psychedelic bands did. And Ray applied those lessons to, to us. He just wanted a good performance and he wanted it to sound authentic and honest and, and just do it. Serve the song, don't serve the latest, you know, recording trick or, you know, Billy wouldn't and doesn't use guitar pedals. That's a, you know, blessing. I guess a real test too is like, do you feel good about playing these songs now? Yeah. Because a lot of people say, I can't play that song anymore because, you know, I did it 40 years ago. It doesn't represent at all what I, what I am. We've had to adjust a few things, like in Los Angeles. <laughs> we don't use the N-word anymore, and that's good because we, we shouldn't. Uh, it was uh, written to hold a mirror up to people. But I am very proud that we can play Hungry Wolf and come back to me. Now we have a fifth member who joins us, and he plays drums while DJ plays Vibes. And Billy plays sax on stage, and that's awesome. That shows this uh, other kind of range that we have. We had a good, we had a really good studio too. You know, we we had Electra Warner Brothers money instead of just Slash Records money. 
a fantastic pleasure talking to the great John Doe. Author, actor, solo artist, member of X, all-around legend. You know, and I try to be a decent human being. I'm glad I can, and, and I'm, you know, always grateful for the opportunity to do something else, and, and I think it's part of being a creative person is someone says, hey, do you want to try to do this thing? You might fall on your face, and it's like, uh, uh, sure, I guess. I'll try. <laughs> Why not? You know, and if you're lucky, you keep your head up and you learn something and, and, and then you can pass it on to somebody else or you can include somebody else. And yeah, that's, the, that's, my, that's my thing. It, it's been a pleasure talking to some professionals. Oh, well, thank, thank you, John. Thanks, All right, John. fellas. Appreciate the time. Great to see you. Man, what a joy. It's a good day at work, Greg, when we get to talk to John Doe. We could have gone for hours. For sure. You know, uh, I want to add some thoughts about the uh, influence of X 40 years on, especially under the Big Black Sun, because uh, to me, that's their masterpiece. Uh, mm-hmm. The other records all have great moments. Uh, the two before, there were three after in the original incarnation. They've done two more since 1993, but uh, Big Black Sun holds up. Um, I think, obviously, it was a big influence to all of the L.A., Southern California punk bands. We talked about them earlier. But I want to make the case that it also paved the way for the bands that would begin to bring American roots music into uh, punk rock and then that transition to indie rock, right? Mm. You know, X was never a new wave band, but we saw so many indie rock bands in the 80s that were bringing in elements of Americana. You had mentioned Rank and File came out of that scene, right? Mm -hmm. But I would also say uh, Jason and the Nashville Scorchers, Tex and the Horseheads, uh, Social Distortion, right? Mm -hmm. The Gun Club, usually underrated band. Los Lobos, mm-hmm. right? right? You know, X and Los Lobos were coming from the same place, part of different communities, but celebrating, you know, the working class, roots sounds, mm-hmm. uh, ethnic sounds. think a big big influence we can even draw a line from x to the replacements or somebody like the del fuegos mm-hmm. from uh, uh, boston I also want to point out how influential, again, it was to see uh, John and Exine leading the band and intertwining those vocals. We could say, you know, uh, greatest couple in rock, both driving forces of a band up to and including uh, White Stripes or Rilo Kiley, you know, Yola Tango, completely different sounds, some of them. Mm-hmm. But uh, the idea of a couple who lives music and loves one another is inspirational. Now, John and Exine are are long since separated, and their differences have been amplified, Uh, but that's the case of everybody at X. Four strong individuals who have very different opinions, as John was saying, but manage to function as a unit. 
Yeah, and you even think about a combo like you know uh, Nick Cave and PJ Harvey on yeah. a track like Henry Lee. Yeah. I, I mean, that's straight line back to X. Or, you know, we had Isabel Campbell and Mark Lanigan oh, in the yeah. studio. Yeah. That combo of voices. Just waking up, some dogs start barking, a bell starts ringing, and you're still missing. You know, there's a sound that harkens back to Johnny and June and George Jones and Tammy Wynette, but it's cool for rock and roll, too. Well, that wraps up our classic album dissection of Under the Big Black Sun. And as always, we want to hear from you. Were you an X fan back in the day? Four decades later, how do you feel about Under the Big Black Sun? Leave us a voice message on our website, soundopinions.org. Go there if you want to give us a piece of your mind. Mr. Cott, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, an in-depth interview with Yola, who released a fantastic record last year and plays Sister Rosetta Tharp in the new Elvis movie, Out Now. I can't think of anyone better for that role right now. They should have just made a whole movie about (laughs) Rosetta with Yola. Absolutely. All I've done is go, this is who I actually am. If they go, we don't like who you are. I'm like, I can't help you with that. I exist. And don't forget to check out our bonus podcast feed where Jim is highlighting a track from a popular streaming show that people can't stop listening to. Yeah, that's right. For more sound opinions, listen to our podcast wherever you find such things. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this program belong solely to sound opinions and not necessarily to Columbia College Chicago or our sponsors. And speaking of sponsors, every week our show reaches hundreds of thousands of curious listeners from around the globe via podcast and on 150 public radio stations nationwide. If you'd like to learn more on how your business or organization can also reach this engaged and educated audience, you can email sponsor at soundopinions.org. That's sponsor at soundopinions.org. Thanks, as always, to our Patreon supporters. Sound Opinions is produced by Andrew Gill, Alex Claiborne, and our associate producer, Sol Delgadillo. Our social media consultant is Katie Cott. <laughs>